This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to Christ the Center, Doctrine for Life, your weekly conversation of Reformed Theology. This is episode number 299. My name is Camden Busey. I'm the pastor of Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. Got another great episode lined up for you today. Let me introduce to you our regulars. We have Nick Batzig, who is a church planter in Richmond Hill, Georgia. He's with New Covenant Presbyterian Church, a PCA congregation there. Welcome back to the program, Nick. It's great to speak with you again this morning. Hey, Camden, good to be back on. Yeah, well, we also have with us Jared Oliphant, who is Regional Coordinator for Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but he's working out of Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome back, Jared. It's great to have you. Thanks, Camden. Good to be here. Oh, we've got a great guest lined up today. Uh, Jared and Nick and I are very pleased to welcome back to the program. It's been three years, we can't believe it, but we have Dr. David Murray, who is Professor of Old Testament and Practical Theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He is also a pastor in the Free Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Welcome back to the program, David. It's great to have you again. Thanks so much, Camden. I, I was just wondering every day what I'd done wrong over the last three years. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, we think that you've paid for your crimes, and now it's time to allow you back on the program. <laughs> as, as, as David said, let me fall into the hands of God and not into the hands of men. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, David uh, blogs at Head, uh, Heart, and Hand. We'll have a link to that in the episode description. He's also online uh, via Twitter at David P. Murray. Uh, a lot of great resources that are posted there regularly. But today we're going to be speaking with him about his new book, Jesus on Every Page, 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. It's published by Thomas Nelson. We were very excited to speak about this book uh, and uh, to open it up, its pages, so that we can see how Jesus Christ is on all the pages of God's Word. But before we do that, I do need to mention that Christ the Center is listener-supported. We do rely on the generous support of all of our listeners to help us to continue to produce and distribute all of our programs free of charge. Uh, We need help keeping the website running. Um, It's getting busy, but we also uh, have uh, some help now uh, in the back end, so we need to be able to support them as well so they can help us, uh, free us up to do these episodes. Uh, So visit us online today at reformedforum.org slash donate. We want to thank everybody for their support of everything we do at Reformed Forum and this particular program, Christ the Center. Well, gentlemen, I was very excited to get a copy of this book in the mail. Very thankful to Thomas Nelson for sending one along, and uh, very appreciative that they've decided to publish this book, and I hope that their network and their broad reach will allow this book to get into many, many people's hands. Uh, But as we get started, David, I'd like to ask you what kind of audience you had in mind when you conceived of the idea of this book and also as you were writing it. Well, uh, I've been on a, a long journey with the Old Testament, and really, I was very confused growing up in church, uh, Baptist first of all, then uh, Presbyterian, and really making little or nothing of the Old Testament. It either seemed very uh, historical, distant, irrelevant, or else very sort of 
um, spooky, mysterious, uh, strange, speculative connections with um, the New Testament and with today. And I was very unconvinced and very confused. And even after I was converted, a few people sort of steered me away from the Old Testament. And um, also, even in seminary, I had made no headway with it whatsoever. Wow. I, I, just, I saw it as a contrast with the New but never saw any connection, really. And even in my early days of ministry, I, I dread to think what kind of confusion I left behind me in my, my first few years of ministering, because I, I'm sure I was as mixed up as the people. But over time, um, gradually, in God's providence, certain things happened that brought great books and resources into my life, uh, especially Christ of the Covenants, O.P. Robertson, mm -hmm. um, he gave us stories by Richard Pratt and, and my own father-in-law's preaching, actually. And I began to sense that burning heart that the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus did and find my soul so edified and enriched by seeing Christ in the Old Testament. And it just became a passion of mine to to share that with others, that, that others come along that road with me. And, and I wanted to write something that was really accessible, not an academic level, but that, you know, just ordinary folks could benefit from. Yeah, we find that biblical theology has been such a hot topic for the last few years, but yet there's still this kind of leap people need to make to get into it sometimes without um, it becoming too simplistic either. So that, that's a challenge here, and I think this book fills that gap. It's helpful to get some of the rich meat and also to spend some time in some of the very key passages that talk about how Jesus is the subject matter and goal of Scripture, but also in a way that's accessible to people new to the faith or people that have been struggling like like you were growing up. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, the biblical theology books that have been written, especially over the last five, ten years, have just been wonderful for, mm -hmm. for academics and pastors. But um, as yet, we haven't really seen the bridge made to make such riches accessible to people who can read 500, 600, 700 page books um, and are just very intimidated by them. So I suppose this is, in one sense, biblical theology for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. now you begin, uh, you've divided this book into two major parts. Uh, the first is what you call My Road to Emmaus, you've alluded to. Uh, what are some steps or some things that uh, started to unfold the fact that Jesus is on every page? Yeah, I, I try to explain first of all, of course, my confusion and how I just, I couldn't figure out, you know, why would God have given us so much Bible in the Old Testament if it was so useless, as, as it seemed to me. And um, the actual, the major turning point was, and if people find this hard to believe, but in all my ignorance, I was actually asked to teach the Old Testament in a little seminary in right. Scotland. <laughs> I, was, I think I was the most unqualified person in the world to do that. But as with everything, when you're asked to teach something, you start learning it. Yeah. And it forced me into this. Uh, um, and again, I just started getting great books and resources, especially from America, from Westminster, from RTS, and began to just this just began to open up. Especially that Luke 24 passage with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And then, you know, seeing what Kaiser expounded for me, First Peter 1, 10 through 12. Again, just a huge breakthrough moment for me. I struggled with some issues in Paul's writing where he seemed to be against the Old Testament, seemed to 
set up very much against the new. Um, but again, some helpful resources enabled me to see that he wasn't portraying the Old Testament as properly understood against the new, but the Old Testament as perverted, as misunderstood against the new. And so that began to help me seeing passages like Second Corinthians 3, uh, Galatians 3 and 4 in a new light. And you know to see that Paul, Peter, Jesus uh, and John were consistent in their views of the Old Testament being Christ-centered. It's such a it's a, a pastoral issue, isn't it? At the end of the day, because um, this your book especially touches on just how you read the Old Testament and how people in the pew are going to approach um, even some of the obscure passages. And I was wondering, um, based on the book, if you could kind of give um, just the the Christian who's reading their Old Testament um, some kind of direction on. Um, you know, seeing Christ in the Old Testament on every page, but not necessarily having that be like a burden and, and a hunt. And you describe a lot of the dangers surrounding that. But what kind of pastoral um, suggestions would you give based on uh, what you've written here? Okay, I think the the key question for people when they're reading their Old Testament is uh, two key questions. One, uh, what did this teach the original readers about God? And secondly, what did it teach the original readers about salvation? And just as we read the Bible with these two questions in our mind, or at least we should, so Old Testament believers did the same. They, they weren't just reading their national history. They weren't just reading a book of law. They weren't just reading about ritual and some nice stories. They, they knew this was a book that was to teach them about who God was and how God saved. The whole Old Testament is this has this forward-looking momentum from Genesis 3.15 onwards. And these people were being trained uh, through these uh, scriptures to seek God and seek God's salvation. So I think for us, when we read the Old Testament, it's to, the, the difficulty is to try and make that step back and say, okay, how did Mr. and Mrs. Israelite read Genesis? How did they read Ruth? How did they read Samuel? How did they read Proverbs? with these two questions in mind. What does this teach me about God? And what does this teach me about God's salvation? How did the even the Old Testament prophets and uh, the people who were inspired by the Lord uh, understand uh, what they were actually saying and writing? Was there a forward focus and an anticipation that was even evident to them as they were writing God's, God's Word under the inspiration of the Spirit? Yeah, obviously there's a lot of debate over how much the prophets knew. Did they know everything? Did they know nothing? Um, I think what the New Testament teaches us is the answer somewhere in between. And I think this is one of the keys to understanding the Old Testament, to look at how the New Testament interprets it and, and gives us principles. Uh, Walt Kaiser gives a brilliant exposition of First uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, 10 through 12 in his book, New Testament Use of the Old Testament. And um, he points to these verses that, that describe what the prophets did and what they understood. And it's quite amazing if you just pause and look at it. The, what they knew, they knew that the Messiah would come. They knew that the Messiah would suffer. They knew he would be glorified. They knew the order was suffering, then glory. But Peter says they also knew that for all that they knew, there was more to be known. 
that future generations would understand far more of their messages than they did themselves. So yes, they had a they knew who, uh, but the details when no they didn't know that that remained to be revealed. I found um, very helpful that you focused on in your book Peter's use there in First Peter one ten through twelve, which for me was very formative as a young Christian. E- even you know Luke twenty four gets a lot of attention in in biblical theological hermeneutics and. And I thought you did an outstanding job in the first chapter about Jesus saying, you know, it's about me. Even his first sermon in Luke 4, he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing today, um, reading out of Isaiah. But that Peter passage really is paradigmatic mm-hmm. in the sense that he's telling us, regardless of how much we say um, or or could conclude that the Old Testament saints understood compared to us, and we do obviously know a whole lot more, see a lot more clearly. Nevertheless, I, I found it so helpful that you focused on that passage as as fully as you did, because Peter very clearly does say that the Old Testament is about suffering and glory through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that just simplifies everything mm-hmm. when you get that. It, it makes, it makes um, I, I love the way Edmund Clowney in one of his lectures says, if you don't get that, then what you have is a bunch of disconnected biographies mm-hmm. of Old Testament saints. So I thought that was so helpful that you really spend a good deal of time there in in that passage in Peter. In yeah, Peter. I agree with you, Nick. It is, it's equally paradigmatic with Luke 24. Um, but it, as you also say, it's so sort of neglected. It's not really much in the discussion. Um, but you know, together with that passage and look, these two passages in Luke 24, they they really do give us the keys that 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 open up the Old Testament that Christ centered way. Without these keys, you wouldn't do it. You you wouldn't be justified in doing it. You could make some guesswork, but you know, here we're given very clear direction and and tracks to go down. Yeah, I wonder how much have you found um, in your own experience, even in the reform world, men pushing back on what you're saying in this book because they they feel almost like it's wrong that we can go back to the Old Testament and preach so much Christ because the the historical audience they'll say could not have known that. How would you answer you know someone that might say that because I hear that a lot in my own experience, even in reform circles where. They, they don't want to go as far as you do in this book or as, you know, a lot of the biblical theological theologians do because they feel like somehow we're, we're getting more than they got and that's not fair or something. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I wrote a little article for Ligonier the other day and I just, just mentioned in passing that I thought dispensationalism had, you know, unintentionally led to neglect of the Old Testament. And I don't think I've ever written anything that's produced so much rapid feedback in all my life. <laughs> that was interesting to watch, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, I actually believe there's there's a lot of latent dispensationalism in the Reformed world. And, and I, when I yeah. look back at myself, I would put myself in that same category. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of Reformed um, teaching teachers that, that just will not do this and, and think it's non-credible to do so. And I'm sympathetic because, uh, you know, we've all seen, I think, if not done, uh, 
some pretty bad practice in this area, you know, where it's gone way too far and said far too much. And it has become incredible, non-unbelievable. So I think one of the things we have to do is in this, you know, time of skepticism and uncertainty about this is, is, is kind of play safe. And I try to do that in the book. I, I try to just take baby steps, really, in seeing Christ in the Old Testament. I try and roll back from you know, a lot of what I believe is of Christ in the Old Testament, because I think we've got a persuading work to do. You know, we have to show that this is reasonable, this is credible, this is sustainable. And, you know, if we don't go too far, I think we've got a, a better chance of, of bringing people along, especially in the typological area, and showing that, um, you know, the Bible itself gives us guidelines on how to do this, and staying within them, uh, we can still preach credibly and uh, believably. Yeah, that's great. Um, when you come to the chapter on Paul's answer, you deal pretty heavily with the with the idea of covenant. Um, can you talk a little bit to our listeners about what role understanding covenant and especially the relationship between Old and New Covenant, as mentioned by Paul in Galatians and um, 2 Corinthians 3, play into this discussion? Sure. This actually was the hardest part in the book to write, I found, because the passages that we're talking about, Galatians 3, 4, 2 Corinthians 3, they're some of the most complex chapters in the whole Bible. And as we know, just tens of thousands of pages have been written to expound them. And so to try and try and simplify them and yet also deal with the very common, I believe, misinterpretations of this passage was extremely, extremely difficult. So I've, I've got a rather simple uh, breakdown of what I believe is uh, taught in these passages. And um, I think the key to this is to not see old covenant as law and new covenant as grace which i think is the most common view out there today that um, the old covenant is not the covenant of works the old covenant is the covenant of grace being revealed in the old testament and the new covenant is that covenant of grace come to um, climactic fulfillment um, you know, people hear Old Covenant today and, and sort of, I don't know why it is, it just seems to automatically go to, oh, that's salvation by works. And I try and use the illustration in the book of a, a company um, that does office administration, selling, you know, envelopes, paper, stuff like that. But new technology comes along, modern life, and this, this company begins to go out of business. They've got People looking for email stuff, software stuff, yet all they've got is paper and envelopes and pens. So this young guy comes in, managing director's son, takes over, gets rid of all that old stuff and starts selling um, you know, more modern technological material. Um, keeps the name, office administration, but underneath it he writes, under new management. It's the same business. Um, he's still selling office supplies. But it's in a new era uh, with new clarity, with new efficiency. And that, I believe, is how we should look at the old and new covenants. They both administer grace. 
Um, but the, the old covenant administered in a way that suited the people then, using older ways, prophecies, pictures, symbols. But now that grace is administered very directly and only through Jesus. It's, it's under new management. The past was glorious. This is even more glorious. Um, I think if people get that, they begin to see the contrast between the old and new covenant. It's not between absolutes, law versus grace. It's a contrast of relatives, less grace versus more grace. Hmm. How does that relate to uh, finding Jesus in the creation, or I should say seeing him as creator and sustainer? What does that unity between both creation and then later redemption um, do for an understanding of that law-gospel dynamic? Right. I I think a lot of us have a a view, a lot of people have a view, I used to have myself, that sort of in the Old Testament, the Father was pretty busy. but Jesus was the Son of God, was more or less sitting on the sidelines, just watching, waiting for his turn uh, some thousands of years later. And, um, you know, maybe kind of wondering at times what's Father up to, and, you know, I'll, I'll do this differently when I come. Uh, but again, going to the New Testament, we read in John 1, in Hebrews 1, in Colossians, that we read of Christ, all things were made by him. And for him. So, right at the beginning, we have the Son of God inserted, involved, intimately involved in even the creation process. And knowing that the whole point, um, that God's eternal purpose was to redeem a people, then we see that creation as a redemptive event as well, as part of redemptive history, that it was created with redemption in mind. It was created to sort of set the stage for redemption. Jesus there, as the Son, was creating um, things, institutions, ordinances, animals, plants, trees, all with a view to later using them in his own salvation and in teaching about his own salvation, all things made by him and for him. And that goes along also with this um, heroes and villains approach, I think, because the ten- the temptation is to not see how many of the characters and events in the Old Testament point to Christ, but rather to take them and see them isolated from the rest of Scripture. Um, can you explain about different approaches and different ways to treat many of these Old Testament narratives and what you find as a helpful way to do it? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I've I've swung left and right on this over the years. I hope I've come to a better balance position. But I have to be honest, I used to preach the Old Testament characters in a very moralistic, exemplary way. Then started getting all these great books and resources and redemptive historical preaching and began to see how you know, no, um, this is wrong. The, we have to, you know, link everything to Christ. We have to see Christ in these things. These are not, you know, do this, don't do that, but, you know, use these people to get to Christ and and kind of left the moral, exemplary, ethical things behind. But I've come to see that this is wrong. The, the, the New Testament, again, as our infallible interpretation of the old, uh, of course, does uh, point to the Old Testament characters and and show how God's weaving a redemptive history together to to climax in Christ. But the New Testament does say, use them also as moral and ethical examples. So it's to try and find, you know, 
maybe some sermons will be very redemptive historical. Maybe some will be very exemplary. Maybe some will be mixed. But it's not to lose either, just because maybe one is abused at times and or overused at times and you know becomes very legalistic maybe. I don't know what be yourself, Camden. What how have you done that yourself in your well, own ministry? I think I think it's yeah, it's definitely a work in progress. But I mean, if you take an example, there's not um, you know a named figure, but the man of Psalm one, for instance. Oh, yeah. You know the the ideal man, God's man, and I think you do the text a disservice if you don't demonstrate that Christ has fulfilled these things, that he is the one who has been faithful to God's calling, who does meditate on God's Word and and take it into his heart. But at the same time, if you just leave it there and say, well, this is Christ, it has nothing to do with you, without going through union with Christ back into what that means for me today, I think you've also fallen short. So there can be the tendency to truncate the text, oddly enough, through a Christocentric reading, but if you don't ever do the Christocentric reading, then you've truncated the text even worse, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a both and. Um, and you know, and I know that Psalm one is speaking to me, but my motivation and my ability to do Psalm one comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through my faith union with Christ, and that's why I ought to want to follow after Him on His path of righteousness. So I like that a lot, Camden. What about you, Nick? You've done a lot of you know, biblical theology work, how do you balance it? Well, I think what Camden said was excellent, and I just had this discussion yesterday with someone about Psalm 1, because there are some men that push back on a redemptive historical hermeneutic and say, you know, Psalm 1 is not about Jesus, it's about you as a believer meditating on God's law day and night, and clearly it is for me, and it's a call for me to... Um, to be fervent in meditating on God's Word and and in avoiding evil and fleeing from sin. But, you know, you have to read, you have to read everything canonically. And, you know, Psalm 5, Psalm 14 says there's none righteous, no, not one. So when I read Psalm 1, and it says the righteous, you know, the righteous man, the righteous one, um, I have to ask the question, well, how, how is someone righteous? And, you know, canonically before that, we're told in Genesis fifteen six that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and it's all tied into the covenantal seed promise of Christ coming. And then I think what Camden said is union with Christ is, it, it's just changed the way I've read the Bible, because then you don't do an either or. Either this is about Jesus or this is about me, but you say this is, has to first and foremost be about Christ, who came, he's the covenant keeper, he fulfilled the law, he was born under the law, he said yes to the covenant curses that we deserve so that we would get the covenant blessings. Now in union with him, you know, we're to walk as he walked. So I think we always have to guard against that either or. I thought Camden said that well. Very good. I like that. Yep. I, I really appreciated that you had a section on um, Christ's presence, discovering Jesus in his Old Testament appearances. And we talk about Christophanies and Theophanies in the Old Testament. And um, it's, a, it's a tough balance to articulate um, talking about a pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament while also acknowledging the unique status of his New Testament incarnation. And I was wondering if you could give our listeners um, how, how you walk that fine line between acknowledging both. 
it is a fine line, I have to say. Um, it's actually the area of Christ in the Old Testament that most excites me because I, I do believe in these angel of the Lord encounters. We, we have the Son of God in pre-incarnate form, usually human form um, in the Old Testament. And I think the distinction to make is human form, not human flesh. And it's brief. He doesn't come to stay as he did in the in the New Testament. Um, the 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 reaction of people initially when they meet with this person is is just a normal man. There's really you know, no great um, impact. But it's as they spend time with him, as he converses with them, as he begins to reveal his identity uh, in his words and deeds that. Gradually, this dawns on them usually that, you know, I, I, I've seen God. I'm seeing God. Uh, this is this is God. I, I, can't, I can't live. And um, so it, I think we have to try and distinguish from the New Testament so that we keep the utter uniqueness of the incarnation and yet also see the, the beautiful glory of Christ in the Old Testament. Some of the some of the incidents, for example, with Hagar at the well in, in Genesis 16, it's almost like a, a a carbon copy of Jesus meeting the woman of Samaria at the well in John 4. Uh, same kind of woman, same kind of conversation, same kind of reaction. Um, it, it's just, it's like one's a black and white and one's a technicolor. And, and it's, it's uh, you feel as if Jesus is doing a trial run, as it were, in, in, in Genesis. It's as if he can't wait to come down and, and do this uh, for more sinners like her. Yeah. What, uh, what do you think the Christophanies teach us, not only about the, the pre-incarnate Son, about the Son, but also about the Trinity? How do they reveal God and God's inward relationships? Yeah, I think it's important to see that um, the the normal, the usual way that God deals with sinners is through his Son. Uh, true from Genesis 3.15 onwards, as Jonathan Edwards makes clear, uh, that, that we must always deal with God through a mediator. And therefore, in the Old Testament, when we're hearing God's voice or seeing God, uh, we have to assume that that is the Son's voice, that is the Son's appearance. And this goes on to the New Testament too. The Father is pointing to the Son. He's saying, this is my beloved Son, hear him. And the Holy Spirit's not testifying of himself. He's showing us the things of Christ. I think it shows the the beautiful harmony again of the Testaments, that in both there's there's this focus on Christ, that Christ is the way, Christ is the face, Christ is the voice of God. Hear him, get to God through him. Father and Spirit have no jealousy over this. There's no jealousy in the Godhead. But this is the way that they have chosen to reveal uh, the Godhead and to interact with sinners. I had This is another sticky question, but um, I appreciated the way that you dealt with a lot of these issues. Um, in the section on Christ's precepts, discovering Jesus in the Old Testament law, um, there is a lot of um, conversation and maybe even some confusion about uh, understanding law in the Old Testament and then grace and, and the gospel in the Old Testament, and is there a contrast with the New Testament? Um, again, kind of a, a balancing question. How do you understand 
law and grace slash gospel in the Old Testament and, and also maybe talking about um, differences within the New Testament as well? I think when most people hear Old Testament, they think law. They think uh, enemy of Christ. And there's no question that the law, when used wrongly, is an enemy of Christ. It's an enemy of the gospel. It's an enemy of grace. Because if we use the law as a way of trying to get to God, as a way of trying to save ourselves, then then we're, we're turning this as a, a weapon against ourselves. So the the question then is, what, where does the law come in? What role does it have? Well, of course, it has the role of showing us our need of Christ. Uh, but it's also, in the Old and the New Testament, revealed as a way of showing our love for Christ. If you take, for example, the Ten Commandments, uh, I think what some of the most ignored verses in the whole Bible are in Exodus 19 and 20. In Exodus 19, for example, you've got uh, the Lord saying, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, I've conquered your enemies, I've taken you through the Red Sea, I've brought you through the wilderness, now therefore, and then says, obey. And it's the same pattern in the beginning of Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. And it's so vital to get this order. It starts with redemption, then relationship, and then rules. Redemption, relationship, rules. And that's the New Testament pattern as well. Uh, You have Jesus himself saying, if you love me, keep my commandments and I'll come and reveal myself to you and my father as well. It's a consistent uh, order, a consistent pattern. I think if if we could see the the gracious context of the law, a gracious redemption and a gracious relationship, then the law looks completely different. It's it's here given by the Lord to help us enjoy that relationship. It's our parameters and borders within which we enjoy that relationship. It's showing us how to enter into a, a growing, loving relationship with the Lord. It's not a way to redemption or a way to relationship, but a way to show our love for that and a way of enjoying it. As I say, I think that's the New Testament pattern as well. David, I wanted to ask you if you would talk a little bit uh, to our listeners about Christ and the prophets. That's probably a hang-up for a lot of people, I would imagine. When you come to the prophetic books, there's so much judgment, and there's so much historically bound details about kings and, I mean, you know, children named Mahal Shahal Heshbez, and people don't know what to do with these things. And your chapter, you go over a lot of really helpful um, hermeneutical points in your chapter on Christ's prophets. Could you talk to us a little bit about the multiple fulfillment dimension that you touch on? And then I'd like, if you would, to talk about Jesus as true Israel and his um, exile and restoration and his death and resurrection. Okay, you won that in five minutes? (laughs) (laughs) Probably, because you have about 15 before we have to let you go. (laughs) Yeah, I think the the prophets are, are, are a real challenge, especially when you see how the New Testament uses the prophets and says they have been fulfilled. At times it looks kind of strange and stretched. And I think one of the reasons for that is because our view of fulfillment is so limited 
that that we 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 think of prophecy and fulfillment as you know it's going to be uh, sunshine at 12 o'clock tomorrow therefore if it's not bright sunshine at 12 o'clock tomorrow it's not a true prophecy but i think again if we look at how the new testament uses the old and again it comes back to do we believe this is an inspired word of god we see that there are many ways in which prophecy can be fulfilled and that if we restrict ourselves to just one kind of fulfillment then we're definitely going to think hey these new testament guys are misusing the old testament so in the book i tried to go through i don't know kind of maybe maybe 10 or so different kinds of fulfillment and one of them is this idea of multiple fulfillment where a prophecy is is not just fulfilled uh, once uh, but repeatedly it, it's like a, a seed that's uh, planted and it's fulfilled in stage one stage two stage three i, I like to use the the three c's idea a uh, commencement continuation and consummation the prophecies of the old testament many of them commenced fulfillment when jesus came they continue to be fulfilled throughout church history but they will not reach consummate fulfillment until the second coming of jesus so it's a kind of filling further filling and then a filling full a sort of final fulfillment and again i think that will prevent us from saying this was all fulfilled in the past or this will all be fulfilled in the future, but rather seeing how these are fulfilled throughout history and right up to the end. That's a helpful approach, I think, and it can clean up a lot of confusion that you get and uh, differences of opinion, especially when we have conversations with our dispensationalist brothers. And it can be frustrating when we don't have a, a rich understanding of prophecy like that. Another aspect of, of a Christ-centered approach to Scripture that sometimes is confusing to people, or at least challenging, is this notion of typology. And I was wondering if you could explain to the listener, as you do in the book, the difference between a type and an allegory, for instance, or maybe even a symbol. Sure. Uh, yeah, the, the typology, I think, as I said earlier, is one of these areas where uh, sort of Old Testament interpretation has fallen into a bit of disrepute because people have taken the Old Testament types and and really run amok with them with no limits and guidelines and parameters. Uh, and it does become this allegorizing. Now, an allegory I see as it's often fictional, a fictional story, um, for example, like Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, but a type is almost always based on a real someone or something. It really happened. There's a historical reality. Um, and that we also have to see it as this was something God ordained uh, to be a predictive pattern or resemblance, not just you know similar by coincidence, but by divine plan. And um, I think to, to just ask ourselves that question, not do I like to see this as a, as a resemblance, but did God ordain this to be a resemblance? In some cases, we're told that explicitly. In many cases, we're not. But again, I think to, to ask the question, not <laughs> have I ordained it, but can we reasonably say that this was God's intention with this passage of Scripture? Again, I think it, it keeps us on the right lines. Um, and, and to see that 
well, my definition is a type is a real person, place, object or event that God ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus' person and work. And I think I, I try and keep that beside me when I'm working on typology and I outline a number of other questions that I hope keep me within the the biblical reasonable bounds of hermeneutics. I think that's helpful. It's a good model. Um, and I was wondering, one of the trickiest places to maybe apply some of that is Proverbs. And you, you deal with Proverbs explicitly. And um, I don't have the quote in front of me. I wish I pulled it up. But um, something like Proverbs is, oh, yeah. uh, they're the tweets of the Bible. I just <laughs> I tweeted it this morning. <laughs> yeah. It's a good way to put it, you know, just short and sweet. And sometimes <laughs> even they can come across as... Uh, legalistic if taken in in the improper ways. And so how can you help people who are reading through Proverbs discover Christ in in, uh, in those? I think in, in a similar way to the law, I see Proverbs as as a an application, a very detailed application of the law to a specific people in a specific time. I think every proverb can be traced back to one of the ten moral laws. And therefore what we do as we go into the Proverbs, we ask ourselves, what moral principle is behind this? Uh, what moral principle can we extract from that? And and then apply that in, in our own day and age. But just as with the law, therefore, we can say that the Proverbs exhibit Christ's character, that they examine us in Christ's light, that they um, show us how to enjoy Christ's presence. And, and they also show us what Christ's home is like because, you know, you've got these proverbs that are contrasting uh, godly homes with ungodly homes, godly people with ungodly people, and it's basically saying this is the ideal, Uh, this is the wise, holy, good, enjoyable way to live, and and none of us will ever experience that here. It's like all these Old Testament books that were meant to create a longing, a yearning, a a passionate, forward-looking Oh, that I might know this, I might enjoy this, and and so when people, the Old Testament believers, read the book of Proverbs, they 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 looked at it as as wonderful help for life, but really promising eternal life, eternal home, eternal wisdom, eternal enjoyment of the all wise God. Yeah, yeah. So would it be fair to say, or is this too much of a stretch, that Christ is Lady Wisdom? Well, I think um, I would say yes, but I, I think you have to lay the groundwork for that. Mm. Uh, you have to couch the book in the Old Testament context. Every book in the Old Testament is answering a problem. Yeah. Um, so you've got to ask, what was the need here? So Leviticus was answering the need for you know, a mediator and a way to, to worship. It was pointing to a priest. Deuteronomy is really pointing us to the need for a prophet, a teacher. Uh, Ruth is pointing us to the need for a redeemer. Judges is pointing us to the need for a, an ultimate military deliverer to defeat the church's enemies. And, and you can go through, and so you come to Proverbs and you're saying, well, you know, what is this book address? What needs it addressing? It's addressing the folly of man and, and the, the ignorance and the, the foolishness, the darkness of the natural man. And, and yet it's saying, you know, there's got to be one who is like this. It's like the Psalm 1, um, blessed man, and uh, pointing us towards there is a source of wisdom, and even giving hints in the Lady Wisdom passage 
that that this wise one is concerned with us, has an interest in us, and one day will express that in a in a wonderful way. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you th- think about Christ becoming for us wisdom from God, we start to see some interesting parallels there. That's that's a good way to think about it. Mm-hmm. Now, many people recognize Christ in the Psalms. We've we've touched upon a few already. Uh, but what about the Song of Songs, for instance? I know Nick has done quite a bit of work on the typology of the song, but um, how have you treated uh, the Song of Songs in particular, and how do you see Jesus in that book that has challenged many people? Yeah, you'll notice I left that to the very end <laughs> in the book, <laughs> so that I wouldn't annoy people to the very end. Um <laughs> Well, I mean, I was brought up in a tradition where the song was uh, continually preached as Christ-centered, and you know, I saw edify so many souls, my own included. So I'm, I'm coming at this obviously with a lot of, you might say, prejudice. I hope holy prejudice, but I hope I do try to make a convincing case, uh, maybe not a traditional case for the song being sung in a Christ-centered way. And again, I try to go back to context canonical context. If, if you find the Song of Solomon uh, on the street or, or on a shelf, you read it, uh, yeah, you, you think it was a romantic song to you know, help create more healthy marriages in some ways. It, it would be sung, it would be read in a way that, hey, let's try and kindle a bit of romance here. <laughs> but that's not where we find it on a shelf. We find it in the middle of a, a, a lot of other books uh, that that speak of a coming king of love, and they often speak of this king in relationship to his people as a as a bridegroom to a bride. And I think when we see that context, then we don't come to the Song of Songs and think, "Oh, uh, this is out of place," or you know, "Oh, here's some marriage guidance." Um, it, the king has written all these books about himself. This isn't just the odd chapter thrown in that's got nothing to do with him. It's seen in the context, it's a song about this coming king of love. And yes, as Paul does in Ephesians 5, there is, of course, help for marriages here. As he switches backwards and forwards from Christ and his church, the man and his wife. And I think that's the way to to view the Song of Songs. As um, In the context, it's about Christ and his church. But of course, there's wonderful teaching and help here as well for human marriages and human love. Nick, you have any follow-up on that? I'm wondering what, what your thoughts on the book are, seeing that you've you've done quite a bit of research and thinking about that topic. No, I, I pretty much agree with David. David was actually my advisor when I was yeah. um, going to do my THM on that, and so I appreciate his approach. And I again, I think the either-or, it's always in theology, people, when they want to press an either-or, there, there's always a danger, and, and I think the scriptures teach both, and that Ephesians 5 passage is just so clear and, and helpful. So I, I think David's spot on. The only only thought I have on it is it seems to be the only book today that people who have embraced a more Christ-centered interpretation still have a hard time with. And I want to say, why would God give us one book out of 66 that doesn't tell us something about our relationship to Christ? So it just it seems... It seems it would be unnatural to be in a book of spe- special redemptive revelation only to talk about human love. So, hmm. interesting yep. thought. 
Well, we want to thank you so much, David, for joining us. I know we got to get going, but uh, again, let me remind everyone about the book, Jesus on Every Page, 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament, published by Thomas Nelson. Thanks so much for joining us, David. It was great to talk to you again. It's been great to talk to you guys, too. It's, uh, I just wish we could have longer together and find out more about your own lives and ministries. I appreciate you all very much. Well, thank you, and it's been an honor to have you. Uh, you can find more about David and read some of his posts online at headhearthand.org slash blog is where uh, his, his current writing is, as well as on Twitter at David P. Murray. You can find Nick online at feedingonchrist.com as well as newcovprez.com. He's online on Twitter, Nick underscore Batsig. And Jared Oliphant, uh, you can find his work. Uh, what's the What's the address of your blog again? Uh, just but in these last days yeah, that's right but in these last days uh, and you can find him on Twitter at Jared Oliphant and of course I'm online too at uh, hopeopc.com you can find up a bunch of stuff at reformforum.org or on Twitter at Camden Busey we'd love to hear from you guys so if you have any comments or suggestions go ahead and get a hold of us or you can just email us at mail at reformedforum.org we want to thank everybody for listening and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center <laughs>